Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable. I'm Andrew Knight, one of your usual hosts, and uh, the voice from across the pond, the fellow that is always with me. Hello, Matthew. Hello, so good to talk to you again. You as well. Before we get into today's conversation, just want to go ahead and ask again for the listeners to uh, get in touch with us through Anchor. And Matthew, what are they sending us? They're sending us a brief little bit of information about themselves, name if they feel safe doing that bit about themselves, and their favorite Bible character. They don't have to justify it. Just tell us who it is and a little bit about that character. Click the link in the show notes to our Anchor page to leave us a voice message, and we'll sort it all out in an exciting episode later in the year. That's assuming we get enough responses, of course. Come on, listeners. You love us, really, don't you? We do have a reason for these, and uh, we will be kind when we use you. (laughs) So today on Still Unbelievable, this is a show that Matthew and I have uh, been excited about for a couple of months. And Mm -hmm. due to some some scheduling delays in in December, uh, we had to put this off. But we are reviewing today a documentary entitled We Believe in Dinosaurs. We're very privileged to have both gentlemen that put this documentary together on Still Unbelievable. And and I want to say hello to Daniel Phelps and David McMillan. Hey, guys, and welcome to Still Unbelievable. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, welcome, chaps. Really nice to have you on. I guess the first thing to do, because we don't have biographies for you guys just sitting on the screen, is to first ask you to tell us about yourselves, and then we'll move right from there into what got you interested in the documentary that you did, We Believe in Dinosaurs, and that documentary, of course, uh, for the listeners that haven't seen the documentary. It's about Ken Ham's ARC project and the Creation Museum. Whichever one of you guys wants to go first, tell us a little about yourself, and then we'll start talking about the documentary. Go ahead, there. Uh, David, uh, David McMillan here. Uh, I want to be clear, you know, Daniel and I were were definitely involved in this documentary. We were kind of subjects within the documentary. The documentary was put together by 137 Films, uh, which is a independent documentary producer based out of Chicago. And I know I was really excited to be part of this uh, when it came all when it all came together. I grew up in central Kentucky in a community that denied the reality of evolution and climate change and uh, just science generally. When I was a teenager, I was heavily involved with uh, Ken Ham's organization, with his first museum project. And actually, Daniel, who you'll hear from in just a second, and I, a long time ago, we exchanged letters to the editor arguing about creationism and, and education, science education. I went to college and got a degree in physics, and I started talking and writing publicly about my opposition to creationism and to creationist ideas. 
and to Ken Ham's organization. So when I was contacted by 137 Films, hey, do you want to participate in this documentary we're making about this arc they're building? I wanted to be sure that they were not part of Ken Ham's organization, that they were taking a positive view of science, and they assured me that they weren't. So we shot over the course of several years. It's one of the projects I've been most excited about. It's just been really rewarding and getting to know Dan as well uh, has been fantastic. Uh, we, we still consider each other close friends. Thank you, So, Dave. Daniel, tell us about yourself. I grew up here in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm a native of the area. I've left a few times over the years with different employment opportunities. Um, it seems like Kentuckians always have a way of coming back home. I always tease David about that. Uh, hopefully he takes it good-naturedly. <laughs> but Kentuckians do have that tendency to stay stay in their native state. So I grew up here in Lexington, got my master's degree from the university, actually my bachelor's and master's degrees in geology from the University of Kentucky, and um, went on to work for a major oil company in the Dallas, Texas area and spent a few years away. But when I was an undergraduate, we had a big controversy here in Lexington uh, where they were trying to give equal time to creationism in the schools. And I happened to be taking Eugenie Scott's physical anthropology class. He's famous probably worldwide now as a, a leading opponent of creationism. But at that time she was teaching uh, here at UK. And anyway, um, I participated a lot in that. I, wrote letters to the editor all the time, anytime anything about creationism came up. But eventually I, I moved away and I came back to Kentucky unemployed briefly before I started work as an environmental geologist for the state of Kentucky. And it was just the same time Ken Ham came back, came to Kentucky to start his um, planned uh, creation museum. This was in the early 1990s. And of course it took Ken Ham until 2007 to open the creation museum. So I had lots of going back, back and forth over that. Eventually, when the ARC was announced, um, I tried to uh, publicize some of the negative aspects of what he was doing. And as the film describes, uh, I was able to determine that they were, they were lying about their uh, claims that they were going to be able to hire, they were going to hire just anybody that applied for a job. They originally agreed that they wouldn't discriminate in hiring depending on people's religious beliefs. And I was able to show they had posted an advertisement uh, where they specified that you needed to provide your salvation testimony, uh, attend a Bible-believing church, and a whole list of different things you had to believe before Answers in Genesis would hire you. And of course, at this time, the uh, state was considering giving them a tax incentive. And my op-ed pretty much um, got Americans United for Separation of Church and State involved. And they were briefly denied their um, tax incentive. Uh, they eventually won the right to get the tax incentive through a federal court case. But that's, a, that's documented in the documentary as well. The producers of 137 Films contacted me a few years into that. And as David said, they must have interviewed me, <laughs> um, maybe 40 layers total. I don't know how much total um, filming they did. They came from Chicago to Lexington, which is a long drive. That's mm -hmm. 600 miles uh, repeatedly to interview myself and uh, also David numerous times. And 
eventually the film was uh, produced. As you guys started to produce the film, how did the framework unfold? So all of us here, by the way, uh, Matthew and I were both young earth creationists in the past, and we found our way out. And in fact, I, I worked for the second largest Christian apologetics firm in the United States back in the early 1990s. And I managed to find my way to the exit over young earth creationism and eventually Christianity in general. How did it unfold that you got to the script that you got to for the documentary? How did you work access to the Ark Encounter as it was being built? Who gave you the access behind the scenes? You know, so the Answers in Genesis organization is very media savvy, and they're very good at taking any media attention, whether it's positive and interesting or negative and insulting, and using it to help promote their brand. So while Dan and I weren't involved with the early shots that the documentary has of the uh, Ark Encounter being conceived and the Ark Encounter um, being being built in some of the early stages, the filmmakers, the, the makers of this documentary got a lot of access to the to Answers in Genesis, to designers, because AIG is good at taking, taking positive uh, media and saying, look who's recognizing us, and then taking negative media and saying, look who's attacking us. So they were very open in granting access to the documentary. Um, so, so they were, you know, these these filmmakers, uh, they were able to be present and shoot uh, during a wide variety of, of all of these uh, developments as this unfolded. I know, uh, I don't, I'm not sure, Dan will have to tell when he got involved. I got involved in mid-2014. Um, they they reached out to me because I had written an open letter to Bill Nye shortly before the museum started being constructed. And they, you know, they just initially, it was going to be one interview. Uh, it turned into more. We spent more time together. Um, and the script kind of wrote itself over time as this arc entertainment museum was being built by Ken Ham and his organization. Uh, Dan, when exactly did you get involved? Uh, probably after you, but I'm not sure of the exact date. It was just, I came home one day and there was a message on my answering machine. Apparently they had been to the Cincinnati, well, they had been to a natural history museum in the region and the scientists there just refused to discuss creationism because the museum gets stuck tax money and they don't want uh, a big dispute with um, the Creation Museum or anything like that going on. So they all knew about my opposition to the ARC and Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum. So that everybody that, that, that refused to talk to them said, well, why don't you go talk to Dan Phelps? And apparently that's how they um, decided to pick me as one of the major subjects in the, in the film. And um, as Dave said, the directors and the producer of the um, of the film basically said that they had initially they had fantastic access to the arc and any event they had about opening or uh, any of the things they did early on it wasn't until very very late that they pretty much were denied more access the film when you see Dave and myself on there we basically um, we're visiting and they, the film crew followed, followed us around. 
It was one of the things that struck me in watching the documentary, just how much access was granted behind the curtain. There are some claims that they make about doing science at the Creation Museum, you know, sort of, sort of deep exploration into dinosaur fossils, and, uh, and they actually have some pretty interesting uh, dinosaur exhibits. When you guys were digging in, uh, I want to talk in a minute a little more about the objections to the Ark Encounter in the Creation Museum uh, overall as it relates to taxes and, and a little more about hiring practice. But um, when, when you think about, because you're both scientists, when you think about the work that they were doing, and you know a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes there, what is your skepticism about the research that they're doing, and why do you think it's problematic? Where to begin? <laughs> well, right, because now we're trying to unpeel, we're, we're trying to peel the onion of young earth creationism. I realize that's a big task. Oh, yeah. uh, but, but I think it's fair to ask at least, what is, do they have a science system? And if they do, what is that? compared to mainstream science, what, what I think we all would support. Well, I, I know Dan has, has referred to it as not so much pseudoscience as almost a parody of science. They have a system. It's a very well-controlled oh. system. It's a very well-regimented system. But the system that they use is a system that is intended to give them and their followers plausible deniability when it comes to any area of science they reject. So so if they want to reject climate change, they don't have to come up with a scientific model that goes the other way. They just have to raise enough questions that it's plausible to continue denying. If they want to deny the age of the universe, they don't have to come up with an explanation for how light reaches Earth from distant stars in only 6,000 years. They just have to come up with an explanation that's reasonably plausible or sounds plausible to their audience. They're very savvy when it comes to their audience. And so all they need to do is come up with what if scenarios and any sort of hole they can poke just to give people reasonable doubt or some sort, something like reasonable doubt. That's their objective. And it's hard when real scientists try to connect with them or to dialogue with them because real science has rules. Real science is about finding the truth, but they're not interested in finding the truth. They're not interested in what's testable or repeatable or verifiable. They're interested in defending and giving excuses for a model they've already decided is true. And that's, that's their system. Yeah, Dave, that's basically it. Um... They start out with their conclusion and they work backwards instead mm -hmm. of how science works, just the opposite. And I think the real, um, one of the things you can really look at that sort of exemplifies this is their, um, what I would refer to as a parody, but actually they have a thing they claim is a scientific journal called, what is it, Answers Research Journal. And if you get on their website and look at their uh, instructions for authors, you pretty much have to sign off that you already believe uh, in six-day uh, uh, creation. Literal creation. Yeah, you know, literal creation with a, a young earth and Noah's flood uh, making all the rocks, at least the vast majority of the rocks. 
and they won't publish anything that doesn't agree with that. And when you call them on this, uh, they will basically claim that, well, uh, real science or regular mainstream science does this too, and that's just not true. Uh, they claim they can't get published in scientific journals, but they, they really don't have any examples where they've tried and failed. Uh, there are all sorts of examples of the work they do that is, um, this comes off as silly, but it's like they've said, it's very plausible to their followers. They, uh, they make it seem like it's science, it has the veneer of science, but uh, unlike science, the conclusions are already foreordained when the creationists um, publicize them. It's the young earth creationism that, that I'm familiar with. Um, uh, yes, and me. It's, back in the days when I was working for that apologetics company, I don't mention it on air because I'm not trying to drive readers. Uh, <laughs> I'm to drive readers to them. Uh, but when I work, so David, you mentioned fossil light and, and the problem of fossil light, right? That we quite clearly have objects in the distant universe that are much further than 6,000 light years. This is how we estimate, well, it's one of the methods that we use to estimate the age of our universe. And it's far, far older than 6,000 years. And so 13.8 billion, something like that, close enough. And to suggest that the error bars are somewhere between 13.8 billion and 6,000 is, is, is just a little ridiculous. I always do an exercise for my incoming geology class, usually when I'm teaching the dinosaur class. I'll have a roll of toilet paper and I'll unroll it around the room and I'll, I'll make the roll of toilet paper symbolize the age of the earth, which is a little bit more than 4.56 billion years old. Mm-hmm. And usually if a typical toilet paper, one square will be about 15 or 16 million years, depending on the brand. And if you compare after unrolling the entire roll and how the paper goes all around the classroom several times, 6,000 years is like the little fringe on the air, very tip of the last piece of toilet paper. Right. It's, so, it's almost um, the, the thickness. Of it's just not yeah. there. I mean, it's just, it's obscene to say that it might be just uh, something that we were wrong about to that extent. You know, if we were wrong about everything, it still wouldn't be a difference between the little fringe on the edge of the toilet paper as opposed to the entire roll going all the way around the classroom again and again. Yeah, there's, there's being wrong because you've made a genuine mistake and then there's utterly insane. Right. <laughs> the problem then seems to me one of, and, and David, I think you mentioned this in the documentary, we almost appear to have a problem of indoctrination. Not This, this doesn't seem to be a, a problem of, of legitimate science disagreeing with other legitimate science. It really does seem to be a defense uh, using using some kind of uh, of pseudoscience to defend a, a religion. Yeah, is that the, fair? It's 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 more than fair. You know, one of the claims that that I believed and I taught when I was growing up, I was very heavily invested in in creationism. I was one of the people in my community who people others looked to to say, okay, well, that seems like evidence for evolution. Let's let's hear from David and he'll tell us how it's not. And you know, so I was very used to this. One of the biggest claims that's made 
right, as well, all science, whether it's our science or the evolution science, there's always indoctrination. There's always bias. And our bias just happens to be the right bias to be biased by. That, that was the, the type of type of rhetoric that was used. Of course, in real science, and what I learned when I you know, went to college and got a degree in physics is, um, yes, there's, there's science that's established. There's science that we recognize has been demonstrated over and over that uh, would be foolish to just ignore as if it didn't exist. Yet, contrary results uh, new findings, something that doesn't fit the established model, that's where science thrives. Everyone wants to have the discovery that overturns something that can't be explained with the current model because then you're the one who gets cited. If I come up with something tomorrow, an observation that that challenges general relativity, you know, I might not be able to explain it, but I'm the one who's going to be cited 10,000 times by everyone who's trying to explain it. And so new findings in science and findings that challenge the consensus are what real science strives for. And that's mm -hmm. not something that's explained. It's explained as well. They have their bias. They have their, uh, their indoctrination. And then we have our bias and we have our indoctrination. But it's, it's just not a true comparison. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. Certainly, when I was still a creationist, my understanding of how the scientific method applied to the work of science wasn't correct. I had a misunderstanding of that. I assumed that there were assumptions about the world and they were just looking for confirmations the same way that creationism works. And then when I worked out about how science confirms things and how science learns things and how it thrives on learning new things and how being wrong is, is always an option. And as soon as all those things started to fall into place, I realized that I misunderstood what it meant to be scientific and i think that understanding was probably one of those first keys that that got me to to changing the way i thought about how we understand the world one of you mentioned earlier about the the finances and the tax breaks of the creation museum i wanted to pick up on that before we um before we move to further because there's a blog which i follow which as report i think the blog's name is the sensuous curmudgeon but i uh -oh, I'm, gonna to, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to uh, fact check that but he this blogger certainly reports a lot on on the finances of uh, the the art project and and that so i enjoy reading his updates uh, and what's going on there and i do know that he's reported an awful lot on the tax breaks that the art project got and reporting on on why that's a bad thing could you fill the listeners in on why we should be concerned about that yeah, that, he actually gets this information from me. <laughs> oh, oh, you're the secret insider. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're Q. We have, we've been looking for Q, and now we've now we've found it. <laughs> well, um, awesome. Well, of course, the uh, ARC itself, when they started, uh, they promised the locals that there would be more than 2 million people a year visiting the ARC. That was what justified uh, the tax incentives, and then also is what justified the locals giving them $200,000 cash, like 800 acres of land for $2. No, excuse me, 100 acres of land for $2. Um, all these tax breaks and goodies that they got was basically because they were going to get uh, all these visitors coming in and they would create new jobs for the community. 
uh, the film very well document, documents how um, Williamstown is basically a ghost town. All the downtown businesses are being boarded up. Um, just everything. There's just no way to really make a living there. And there's hardly anything downtown anymore, which was once a, many years back, was probably a thriving community. A very, very nice, lovely town overall. But when you... Um, look at how many people are visiting the ARC these days, um, I'm able to keep track of that. Uh, about 2017 or so, the city started um, charging, because they weren't making any money off of the ARC through taxes or anything like that to amount to anything, uh, they came up with a tax of 50 cents per, per ticket that was sold. And they they financed their local fire department in part with this and their local ambulance service. Uh, it's basically a tax to pay for these things. They're added responsibilities for the city because of the existence of the ARC within its city limits. So the city gets 50 cents a head for every ticket they sell. And this makes the information available through the Freedom of Information Act, or more specifically, the Kentucky Open Records Act. So I'm able to once a once a month write a letter to Williamstown. A woman knows me now. She she gets the letter from me on time every month about the 20th of the month, and um, I'm able to document how many people are actually visiting the ARC, how many tickets they sell. When I first did this, Ken Ham got really upset and said, "Well, there's a lot of children visiting, and there's a lot of lifetime membership passes, and that might be true, but it's not significantly going to change the numbers." And they're probably making in the neighborhood of maybe 900,000, definitely less than a million people per year visiting. At various times, they've argued that they have higher than a million visiting, but they've never gotten anywhere near the nearly 2 million people that was initially claimed um, by people when they were being sold the ARC project, to the when the locals were being sold the ARC project. So um, I'm able to keep up on this and keep, fairly accurate numbers and see how it trends. Of course, they've been hurt really bad by the COVID. Mm, uh, they were okay. closed for an entire month and were closed part of at least another month. And they've lost all of their um, senior citizen bus tours that were really making a lot of money for them. Those have all dried up this year. But they are slowly coming back. And I'd say once the COVID um, pandemic is over, they will probably be back but still, they won't be making more than a million people per year is visiting. That doesn't seem like a, enough money to fund the local fire department and the local paramedic service. No, it just, it just, helps, it just helps them. But still, it's not near what um, they, they thought they were going to initially get. The tax incentive program that Kentucky has is intended for different entertainment venues and other major groups that would be able to provide revenue to the to the Commonwealth of Kentucky, to provide tourism, to attract new jobs, to attract new businesses. And this tax incentive program does have some requirements for making sure that it's actually providing open access for jobs, that it's actually going to bring in new revenue that's going to bring in enough tourism to justify the cost of this tax incentive program. One of the biggest things that Dan figured out early on is that the hiring requirements for this 
organization have this very strong religious bent, not just that atheists can't work there, not just that Jews or Muslims or Hindus can't work there, but that most Christians can't even work there. So it was a very uh, limited number of people that they were going to hire. And so that's why their tax incentives were challenged, because not only was this a religious organization claiming that they had uh, this entertainment tourism venue, but they were going to limit their hiring to this very specific religious subset. And Ken Ham would go on talk shows and he would be talking to Christian people and say, this is an evangelistic venture. This is basically one big church that's going to convince people to join our particular sect of Christianity, not just religious understanding generally, but a very small subset of religion. And then, of course, you know, when this was legally challenged, he would say, no, this is an entertainment venture. This is a tourism-based, for-profit attraction. And so it was this two-sided approach because they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. At one point, they even uh, bought the for-profit company and brought it inside their nonprofit company and said, we should get tax incentives because we're a for-profit company, but we shouldn't pay taxes because we're owned by a nonprofit company. And so it's a lot of finagling. Oh, you know, like you know, it's show company. It's show companies. They own each <laughs> other. Uh, everything's owned by Answers in Genesis, but then there's Crosswater Canyon, there's Arc Development. There, there's like four or five different things put together, including a for-profit group that most people don't know about called Taking Back Industries, which is sort of their investment group. Really bizarre stuff. Wow. Um, backtracking wow. a little bit, I know Dave mentioned how they won't they won't hire Christians. I'm shocked sometimes by how often uh, Ken Ham will attack uh, other Christian ministers, and how <laughs> his organization will often consider things. That even though I, I don't think highly of as religious organizations, I, I still wouldn't attack them publicly if I was running a business. They attack people like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh Day Adventists, uh, Mormons are supposed to be the, the, in league with the devil, and all these horrible things that you see in some of the literature of Answers in Genesis, where they attack other Christian groups, and yet they're still getting this tax incentive. Uh, we should also mention the tax incentive is $18.25 million over a 10-year period. So they get a little bit more than $1.825 million a year, and they're four years into the, uh, into the tax incentive bill. Now, during the documentary, I, I, I'm not positive I remember this number exactly correctly, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it seems like as part of this whole working out with the state that they would qualify for these incentives, et cetera, it seems like they said they would um, they would create 970 jobs, 920, some, somewhere just south of 1,000 jobs. Have they done that, at least? Or it, does, does the art project and the Creation Museum employ anything like that number of people? If you look at their 990 forms, all nonprofit organizations have to submit this thing called a 990 form to the IRS. And unfortunately, it's always due like two years after the events um, have occurred. 
So I always have outdated information. And I don't have it right in front of me at the moment, but it is considerably less than that. They have a huge number of volunteers. A lot of elderly people have actually moved to the area and work for them for free. So they do have a lot of elderly working for free as volunteers. I think they have a lot of uh, uh, teenagers working as interns. Mm-hmm. And I always hear stories about people that are former employees, how dissatisfied they are about their pay and their working conditions. It hasn't done near as well as far as pro- uh, producing jobs as was initially claimed. But I can't give you exact numbers. That's fair enough. It, when I was watching the documentary and that number came up, and my apologies that I didn't write down, you know, it's 900 and some change, whatever was in the documentary. I, I should have written the number down, but it, it struck me that that was an awful lot of employees for this scale of operation. And that if they didn't make that number, the infusion of, of cash that the community expected as a result of the benefits that the project was receiving would be far out of step. And uh, so uh, problems on all fronts, it appears. Well, and, you know, this, this group, um, you know, we, we've talked about how they take, they claim tax exempt status and tax incentive status at the same time, how they take positive media as attention, and then they take negative media as proof that they're persecuted. Their approach to the town and the the impact on the community is very similar. Um, There were a couple of successful restaurants and businesses that were catering to people who visited the Ark Encounter. And so they bought those businesses and moved them inside the grounds so they could No way. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think there was like a hot dog place. Jim's, uh, that's straight out of the Microsoft playbook. <laughs> you know, so so it's a lot of stuff like that. They were claiming originally, if you watch the documentary, these these small businesses in this small town were told, look, we're going to be bussing people into your town to spend time here while they're waiting to come to the Ark Encounter. But what they do instead is they are they're building hotels inside the grounds. They're building uh, restaurants and other attractions inside the ground because they're not I don't know a hotel yet, though, Dave. Um, they have enough land, and when they initially started, they they mentioned making hotels, but now they they don't ever mention that. I keep sp- suspecting that they will eventually have a hotel. Right. They're 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 just basically they've they've told this community. The streets are going to be paved with gold because everyone's going to be here. And then time and time again, they're just trying to keep everyone inside their place. They even, when you go, this is not something that's shown in the documentary, you you pay for parking and then you get onto a bus and they bus you into the Ark Encounter. So you don't even have your vehicle. And so you can't go visit the community. You can't spend time uh, at least local businesses, they control this entire almost compound of, of attractions. Wow. And yeah. how long and would a typical visit take in terms of hours? For the average person, I'd say just an afternoon, two or three hours maybe. But apparently they are really in, into some of the true believers apparently spend a lot of time there. They actually have multi, multiple day passes to visit the Ark and the Creation Museum combined. 
So they spend a lot more time than the typical person. If you go there, if you look at the film, you see that a lot of the displays are nothing more than posters that you're supposed to read that are on the wall, as well as dioramas of Noah and Noah's family and stuff like that that have an extreme amount of invention. I forgot the exact term they use. What was it, Dave? Uh, artistic license. And they, they make up all sorts of backstories about all the characters. Something I should mention, too, was March a year ago, right after the film had aired on PBS, somebody from our local newspaper, one of the reporters, did sort of an opinion piece where she discussed the ARC film. And Ken Ham replied to her um, op-ed. And he blamed the town's mis misfortunes of on being on the opposite side of the interstate from the ARC park. And he actually put the blame on the town. And I answered him, and I'm trying to find a copy of my op-ed, but I point out that Ken Ham, when he was getting all the goodies, all the land, all the tax incentives, all the tax breaks, uh, actual cash, he knew where the town was located in respect of where the ark was going to be mm. built. And this sort of reminds you, um, see, I saw it recently on one of the obscure cable channels. I don't know if in Britain you get a TV show in the US, from the U.S. called The Simpsons. Yeah. Yes. There was an early episode <laughs> called something like Marge versus the Monorail. Where a oh, yes, I know one, yeah. Builds a monorail. And it comes off so much like Ken Ham selling the town on the Ark. And the same thing happened. The Ark just has not um, paid off for the town. And you can compare um, what Ken Ham is saying now where, oh, gosh, I wish I could find my copy of this. But anyway, it basically, Ken Ham says, well, it's just a little town on the other side of the interstate. Uh, that's why they're not succeeding. Is there the, the any evidence that some people might be avoiding the town because of the presence of the ark? Um, you know, I, I don't. I wouldn't say avoiding the town, but there's there's very little there. There's very little in terms of tourist attractions in this town, and they were really hoping that it would turn things around. Uh, one of the one of the incentives, and it talks about this in the film. You know, Ken Ham claims over and over, not one penny of tax money went into building this. Mm -hmm building this project or building this attraction, the town loaned them money and then said, you don't have to pay the money back. We'll just use your property taxes for that. And we will tax your employees on their salaries and use that extra tax on your employees to pay it back. And so they got a no interest, basically forgiven loan just to build there. And one of the things I know Dan was talking about how people will spend, uh, you know, a couple of days there, they'll sell multi-day passes both to the Ark Encounter and to their original attraction that I actually helped raise money for when I was a teenager, uh, the Creation Museum in Cincinnati. Um, they'll sell multi-day passes to both. They'll have people stay in hotels in Cincinnati. And then they'll bus people down to the Ark Encounter one day and then bus them back and forth. So people never come to the town because there's no access to it. They're just, it's part of a process that Anthrocytogenesis uses to keep everyone within their two museum set. Wow. It, it's, it's appalling. I, I've got to ask, uh, this, this is 
this is changing topics for just a moment, but it strikes me um, from a continuity perspective that if I were going to the ARC encounter and there was there was one thing that I insisted should be there, it wouldn't be dinosaurs. And it wouldn't be talk about a flood. It wouldn't be talk about Noah and an ark. What I would insist on seeing, the, the thing that would, that would create some continuity that just couldn't be there without it, is a piece of the ark. <laughs> this, 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 this is the ark encounter, for crying out loud. So, so is that there? No, Do they no. have a piece of wood that they say came from the ark? <laughs> no. I guess I can. <laughs> that would be awesome, wouldn't it? But, oh, yeah. But uh, to their credit, they actually debunk some of their fellow religious types that have had expeditions to Mount Ararat to look for the ark <laughs> and that have had uh, claims of finding pieces of wood and stuff like that. Uh, there's a guy down in Tennessee named Wyatt that has a whole little fake archaeology museum that's really tiny compared to anything Answers of Genesis does that claims that he has been and discovered Noah's Ark or at least pieces of it. And no, at least at least uh, Answers in Genesis actually uh, has done a good job of debunking other uh, uh, fundamentalist Christians' claims to have found the Ark. Uh, I'm not sure. The astronomer, which Dave actually has talked to a bit, has actually written some wonderful things about uh, debunking the Flat Earth Society, which has become a thing here in the States, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, well. <laughs> I might not give them credit for debunking these things um, so much. Uh, you know, Answers in Genesis, uh, like I said before, is they're about ex providing plausible deniability to their followers. And so if someone comes along and says, this is a piece of the ark, uh, that really challenges their supremacy and their ability to control the narrative and their ability to hold themselves out as a source of knowledge. Because if they say, here's a reason why evolution isn't true, and someone else comes along with a piece of the of Noah's Ark, um, then that pulls away from them. So what they want to do is they want to say, look, that's not a real piece of the Ark. The Ark was probably, you know, chopped up and used for firewood. Um, we, we shouldn't look for the ark. We can't prove anything we're saying. You need to listen to us because we're going to tell you how to deny evolution and how to maintain your beliefs. And so, you know, they, they're debunking flat earth, um, which, you know, I mean, good, but, um, the, the but bother, you know. <laughs> anything like that is a, any other conspiracy theory is a challenge to their power. And so, you know, they're always going to hold themselves out as the only ones who have the truth. Yeah. You know, that so was Andrew, an interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, oh, Daniel. Go ahead. I was going to say something interesting they have at the Creation Museum, not at the Ark, is they have a really nice Allosaurus skeleton. Mm -hmm. And when they first got this, they made a big deal about how they had acquired an Allosaurus skeleton. It was donated to them by a guy, guy from Maryland named Michael Paroka. And it had been discovered on land owned by a evangelist named Doug Phillips out in Western Colorado many years back and excavated. And Phillips was involved in some sort of scandal that ruined his ministry. And the skeleton ended up in the hands of this guy named Michael Paroka. And I'm, I wasn't really familiar with him. And I started researching who he was. 
once they announced that Paroka was donating the Allosaurus skeleton to the Creation Museum. And it turns out Paroka is a white supremacist that was on the board of the League of the South and had all these really horrible connections. And Ken Ham, of course, accepted this. And I wrote a press release and sent it out when they announced that Paroka had done this. And that was pretty much ignored by the press. But I demanded that they donate the the, the Creation Museum, donate the Allosaurus skeleton to a real museum like the Smithsonian or one of our regional museums. Of course, I knew they would never do that. But it was pretty pretty much ignored. And that was one of the things I was disappointed was left out of the film was my discovery that uh, this white supremacist had donated this dinosaur skeleton to the Creation Museum. And it's received very little publicity except on a few obscure blogs on on the Internet. So out of curiosity, so, so wow, there is so much to pull apart there. And and I, you know, you we can we can either go with something like the connection of white supremacy to evangelical fundamental Christianity, which I, I don't want to do. Uh, well, or, actually, or, again, this is something to Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis favor is they try not to be racist, right? I'm not sure and, and, right. They, I, I don't. They try. They try to be anti-racist, although they are very into attacking Black Lives Matter and other movements, they still have these conferences where they will will proclaim to a very uh, evangelical fundamentalist audience uh, the equality of the races. So it's some improvement. That is is improvement. And and I don't want to fly a false flag in this recording and accuse them of things they wouldn't support. But it does seem to me that if you're going to accept something like this Allosaurus, which is hugely valuable in its own right to something like the Smithsonian or a British museum or something like that, it it would at least seem to me that the proper thing to do would be to acknowledge how you got your hands on it and to disavow white supremacy, you know, to make sure that that connection doesn't get... And so I'm wondering... Is there something like that where they've acknowledged, look, we we got this thing from a source and we don't agree with the source? I, yeah, I know when I publicized they're doing this, uh, Ken Ham wrote a blog post specifically about me. And if you type in um, the phrase, who is Dan Phelps? It's all about my complaint about uh, Answers in Genesis wasn't going to do any research on this Allosaurus and many other things, but Ham never mentioned the white supremacy part. Yeah. It's, it's really tragic. It's, it's really tragic, you know, from a scientific perspective that, you know, one of the most complete, um, most well-preserved Allosaurus skeletons that we've ever discovered is just gathering dust in a, in a, in a phony museum where there will never be any real research done. We're not going to learn anything about about history, about science, about uh, this species from this, you know, from this fossil. This fossil might as well have been ground up into dust because we're not learning anything and, and we'll never, there'll never be any real research on this fossil. And that's tragic. Have they got the actual fossil on display or just a plaster cast of it? It's, 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 a, real, it's a real fossil. Right. Yeah, they, the, wow. the skeleton itself isn't as complete as they say, but the skull apparently is a magnificent example. Yeah. And it's a real shame that it's been lost as it has. 
I'm sure they'll eventually publish something on it in their own in-house journal. But again, I'll point you back to the fact that their in-house journal basically says you can't publish anything that disagrees with the seven-day creation or six-day creation, 6,000-year-old Earth. So... What's the that risk is, to, you were talking about the Ark Encounter being quite media savvy. What's the risk to them to allowing proper scientists to access the fossil and to have a, a few months uh, time to, to examine it on their premises? Yeah, that, I mean, they, would, they would probably get a good deal of publicity out of it if they, if, if they, um, if they acceded to something like that. Um, it seems very no. tour and shroud to me where, you know, so we've got this, we've got this burial cloth of Jesus that, uh, you know, we're not doing any more testing on that thing. Right. And, and the Allosaurus seems to fall into that. No, no, we're not doing any testing on that. It's way, it's way too valuable. It's way too valuable. It's test on. So uh, well, it seems very tour and shroud. They've actually named the Allosaurus Ebenezer. After, <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> So I, I do want to pull back together a thread for just a second, um, apropos of a much earlier part of this conversation when we were talking about uh, indoctrination. I, I think it's worth saying to the listeners how I'm using that word. So when I, when I use the word indoctrination for the listeners, uh, I simply mean teaching someone or, or some group of people to accept a view uncritically. And when I talk about science, it actually matters very little. Uh, well, in some sense, it only matters very little whether someone is indoctrinated into science because the scientific method will stand apart from that indoctrination. And so when I was questioning the parallels between the work being done behind the scenes at the Creation Museum and its sort of natural opposite, uh, which is which is just the science that we're talking about here, what we're really trying to peel apart is whether a Christian science can stand without indoctrination. And, and so it might actually be that some people from uh, from the Ark Encounter or, or the Creation Museum. It might actually be true that there are people who are indoctrinated into science, but the power of the scientific method is that it doesn't need indoctrination to work. And so when I say indoctrination, I simply mean teaching someone to examine things uncritically. And the scientific method is a critical method that works with or without indoctrination. Sorry, I, I wanted to pull that back together because I think we left it. And if you guys have a, a disagreement with any of that, by all means, please. No, not at all. I mean, I would be really upset if my students told me that the reason they accepted such and such ideas was because I told them so. That's just, that mm. would be just the absolute worst. I'd rather they be wrong and be thinking for themselves than to say, well, that, this is the way it is because my teacher said so. That, that's just awful. Right. And I don't mean, by the way, that indoctrination is ever okay. I just mean that when we talk about science, we want a method that will work 
regardless of uh, of how committed you are to it. And 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 we know this today, right? We can we can think that that running out of gas will mean uh, that our car actually doesn't stop. We'll get to our destination with or without gas, um, but <laughs> it won't matter how indoctrinated you are into that idea, right? That, that you can drive without gas. You're, you're, you will simply uh, you will simply end up on the side of the interstate. So <laughs> you can you can insist that you won't, um, but the methods that I think we are all that we are all supporting here are methods that work. Uh, from an observer independent perspective. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons that I I got a degree in physics was because I was encouraged to by people in Answers in Genesis, by other creationists who said, you know, go to a secular university, get a degree, get credentials, and you know, then basically you can come back and you can be one of our you know, one of the people who helps advance all of this, who helps mm. defend, you know, defend the faith. And so that was my goal. You know, I was going to college to get a degree to go ahead and find answers in Genesis and uh, pardon the pun. And in doing that in learning how science works in doing actual science, it, you know, became more and more apparent to me that no, uh, yes, you can have bias. Yes, you can have, you know, there are obvious examples of bias, but if you apply the scientific method and you work your way through it, eventually you come up with an answer that you can verify, that other people can verify. Mm. And that was one of the reasons I said, okay, yeah, I can't, I can't make this work anymore. Okay. So I know you're a physicist and um, I will simply say that when I, uh, when I said uh, observer neutral, I was not thinking about anything quantum and I'm not qualified. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did mean I did mean in the macro world and not in the world of quantum anything. Uh, so, That's fine. So. Quantum mechanics was, is, was, has never been my my favorite subject. David, are you willing to share where you went to school? I'm just curious. Yeah, just you know, curious. I got my degree uh, in physics, um, and I, I don't I don't work in a scientific field now. Um, I actually work hmm. in law, and I'm, I'm going to be an attorney. But oh, I, good for you. Uh, yeah, I, I love what I do. Um, but I, I mean, I have been published in science and stuff like that, but the, you know, I went to college, uh, at a fairly smaller, I, I thought it was medium sized. uh, it turns out 6,000 students is tiny. I went to a small state school in Alabama called a uh, university of North Alabama. Um, uh, they had a good You did business. not know. Yes. yes. I'm from to, Alabama and, uh, okay. Wow. Sorry. Yes. That's, yes. I, I went to UNA, uh, you know, go lions and yep, yep. I, yep. I went to UNA. Um, they had a good physics program. I avoided taking geology classes or biology classes. One of the great things about physics is it's basically just, you know, math and then your physics classes. So mm -hmm. I was set there. And so I, I didn't have I didn't have any real challenges. And physics is something that, you know, other than issues with the age of the universe, which don't come up too often, physics is pretty neutral. From a scientific perspective, from a, from a creationist perspective, you can figure out how radiation works and how quantum mechanics works and how a transistor works without really worrying about how old the universe is or whether we're, we're related to chimpanzees. And so, you know, I got my degree in physics. I spent time on the side trying to understand things like 
the starlight and time and trying to understand things like why our DNA matches so closely to the DNA of, of other apes. That was where I went, was uh, University of North Alabama. How about that? I am, um, I am not from quite that far north in Alabama, but I am from the original home of rednecks and race cars. Uh, I'm from Talladega, and I don't know if you ever made it that far south. But anyway, it's cool that we have a, a, a sort of similar geography in that regard. So I am curious, now that you talk a little bit about the people in Ken Ham's organization pushing you into, uh, you know, getting an education in science. I'm sort of wondering how that unfolded as you started. Uh, let me say, so when I walked away from Christianity, that took a little while, and those broken relationships were pretty um, uh, were pretty devastating. Right, you lose a lot of community, and I'm sort of wondering how that unfolded for you. How did you explain to the people that encourage your education, that your education didn't lead them to the conclusions that lead you to the conclusions that they thought it should. Yeah. Yeah. I made a lot of people very upset very quickly um, (laughs) to state it it very, very simply, Um, you know, and, and I'm not someone who has gone the whole way, who's left behind Christianity completely. I still consider myself to be a person uh, of faith generally, but I was vocal about the flaws in creationism and vocal about how creationist ideas, they don't help Christianity spread. They're just Mm -hmm. a way of controlling people's beliefs and a way of maintaining power in organizations like Answers in Genesis who want to control a narrative and have people support them financially and want to exercise a degree of influence over other organizations and over churches and so I talked about this is not good science. Uh, creation, Christianity does not require a young earth creationist perspective. There are lots of Christians who hold other beliefs, who accept that the Bible has, isn't intended to provide you know, a, a survey of natural history. And so I talked about that and I wrote about that. Answers to Genesis got extremely upset. They contacted my parents. They tried to get my parents to silence me. Um, they, I remember getting a call from my mom, just crying because one of Ken Ham's people had called her at home and had like started reading to her the things that your son wrote and how could he attack us? You know, they were very upset. They wanted me to be quiet. They wanted me to stop. They asked, you know, come to our, you know, come here, talk to us. Surely when you get, when you come back here and you're in our house again, we can convince you that you, you're just mistaken. And uh, I did talk to them. I did go and I did spend time talking to some of the folks there. And, you know, to their surprise, they were not very convincing. They're now very unhappy with me. I've definitely lost a lot of family, a lot of a lot of connections because of it, because there's this sense in the evangelical creationist Christian community that all of these things are interdependent. And if you're attacking Mm -hmm. The age of the universe or the age of the earth or the historicity of Genesis, then, you know, you're going to lead everyone to throw everything out and you're a, a puppet of the atheists. And so they were not happy. They're still not happy. Uh, they've written papers about how they're not happy with me. The Answers Research Journal has journal articles about how they don't like me. And, you know, so that's been a long, that's been a long, long saga. I had a, 
they can be very personal in their attacks on people. Mm. Are you ready for it, Andrew? <laughs> when this episode for... goes viral, are you ready for the attacks? I, uh, I am. I am. Um... Well, I, it's not impossible that will happen, and uh, and I will say that I um, I lost the I, I no longer have Christian friends. David, we we share a, a, another bit of common ground here. I was taught in uh, so I, I was Church of Christ, as most of our listeners know, and the thing that we taught our children, and the thing that I was taught was, if every word in the Bible is not trustworthy as it's simple reading, right, then you can't trust any of it. Every word had to happen the way it appears to, the way it appears to say, or you just can't trust the whole thing. And and so the Church of Christ would have felt very much like the folks over at the Creation Museum in Ark Encounter, Ken Ham's entire organization. And I will just say that when I walked away, I also moved states. I no longer live in Alabama. And that whole community, they reject me now. Yeah. Uh, my my first girlfriend in Alabama in college uh, was Church of Christ, actually. So, uh, I'm, so you, you know, know I'm, I'm somewhat familiar <laughs> with the, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was, uh, that was rough. Um, but, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar. Now, is it was she is she part of the right Church of Christ, the one that doesn't have pianos, you know, complete acapella <laughs> singing, and you know, because because there's the wrong Church of Christ. The, I'm serious, the other ones that aren't going to heaven. I, <laughs> oh no, so, no, she was part of the she was part of the correct one. You know, they didn't have pianos. They they had pitch pipes, but no pianos. Um, but they she would listen to secular rock music. That was great. In fact, I had never listened to secular music growing up. So she introduced me to all of the bands and that was fantastic. But she wouldn't listen to Christian rock bands because that they was used the, instruments of music. Yeah. They were, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it was, I was I was like, I don't get this. I don't get this, Meredith. Oh, right. I'd love to have. Oh, dear listeners, if you know somebody who who thinks that way, put them in touch with us. I'd love to have that conversation. It, it would be it, it, it would be an education. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. You can listen to the Eagles, but you cannot listen to a cappella vocal band. It's, it's one of the strangest. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that bit of background. It, I think it builds on part of this podcast and that is the lengths to which it is possible to take organ, uh, organized religion and isolate yourself to isolate your community and, and to become so insular and indoctrinated that you actually do damage to support the cause that you're promoting and i think that that is a, a relatively common theme that we've been exploring um, so, so thank you for sharing that that history, that personal history, because I think it's important in that thing. I want to ask um, what, how you guys felt walking around the ark and looking at it, and um, and knowing that, uh, for lack of a better word, a significant chunk of what was being fed to all the visitors was uh, was our outright lies, although. I don't know if lies is technically the right uh, word to use. It's certainly mistruths. What's it like walking around there, watching people read it and take it in? It was just disappointing. I mean, it it really 
it's it's just unbelievable that um that they have such a hold on so many people the way they do uh here in kentucky we've tried for decades to get our act together the scientific community has tried to get its act together and have a natural history museum mm. many of the surrounding states mm. have really nice natural history museums the nearest one we have to us here in Lexington is in Cincinnati. We just can't raise the money. And for all the things, bad things I say about Ken Ham, he's brilliant about raising money and stuff. I think I said that at the very end of the film, how impressed I am that he came to Kentucky with very little and was able to put this all together. And it just tells us a lot about uh, the nature of how people understand science and how they're willing to donate money to things that are non-scientific. And it's sort of heartbreaking. It's on the same level as um, what's going on politically with the country right now. Mm. That people are willing to accept conspiracy theories over anything mm. having to do with reason. Because you know, Daniel, we're... one of the one of the most poignant parts of this documentary for me is I think you were working on an outcropping of rock by one of the interstates, if I remember correctly, doing some geology right there in your backyard, right? And to know that that kind of thing is available to you, it's right in your backyard. You can learn about the natural world just by stopping on the side of the road and climbing over some rocks. And to know that you don't have a natural history museum because the interest to give the money is not there is well, shameful. I'm a little gutted by it. <laughs> I think that it's shameful that the scientific community hasn't gotten its act together and we can't, we don't have any political influence to amount to anything, but uh, somebody can come along with, with total nonsense and have millions of dollars available within just a few short years. That's the thing that really brought me into science, too, like you said, was I could, I could read something in a book and I could go out and check it out for myself to some extent. Couldn't do everything, but, you know... I, I was into amateur astronomy as a kid, uh, collected insects, uh, Indian artifacts, uh, and of course fossils were my main thing. The real appeal to science is that you can check so many things out on your own, even at an amateur level. I don't want to say anything irreligious, uh, even though I'm not re a religious person. Uh, religion just never had the same appeal to me for that reason, is that you could debate different things and religion has some really wonderful ideas. But at the same time, there was no way of finding out things for yourself without just having philosophical arguments. Leading on from my last question, I'm, I'm obviously, um, I'm in the UK, so visiting your part of the world doesn't happen very often. And for the foreseeable future, isn't going to happen at all until uh, the world settles itself down a bit. But I have had the pleasure of visiting Meteor Crater over in Arizona. It was a long drive to there. I'd been at the... Um, Grand Canyon previously and it was a long old drive down to Meteor Crater and it's a it's a long drive through not a lot to get there um, and you get there and it's a chunking great hole in the ground with this little building next to it um, obviously very lucky that the the, the rock missed the building <laughs> but um, it was it was it, it was great visiting that place and learning the science there and I had a fabulous uh few hours uh, there with my wife is that a rock from there that you've got there uh, it's actually from argentina but it's the same type of meteorites excellent and excellent oh, it'll be cool and <laughs> um, so if i found myself on a holiday in america again and i find myself in that part of kentucky should i stop by and see it and if not what else should i do instead 
you know, I'm going to say you should go. Uh, there's a, uh, well, for one thing, uh, call me first because I can, I can get you into the Creation Museum for free. Uh, at least uh, you'll still have that will to always be a benefit. Yes. Yeah. We, we don't, don't give them any more money than, than you have to. Um, you know, I, w I visited the Ark and it was really conflicting for me because uh, on the one hand, it is heartbreaking to see all of this fake, uh, all of this just complete nonsense being promulgated, but it's also huge and cool and exciting to see it is a large building it's a big honking building with um you know and it's 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 very imposing so it's it's very very interesting to see it's worth seeing and if nothing else but to view how other people are going through it and are are viewing it and to see the kind of people that believe because it's not just people who don't have a who don't have education it's not just people who are you know, like senior citizens on a bus trip and homeschooling kids uh, with, you know, with head coverings. There are people who, you know, my own dad has a master's degree in chemistry and he still believes in creationism wholeheartedly. There are lots of pe people who walk through this and who see it as a positive thing. And it's frustrating, you know, to see the, this broad support from the Christian community for something that in many cases, attacks things that they believe that, you know, Ken Ham will attack people who don't hold exactly to his, his viewpoint. And yet he can still get people to support him by saying that I'm defending the Bible. I'm defending faith. And it's, it's, it's tragic to see, but it's, it's still definitely worth the experience. Okay. I wasn't sure what answer I expected, but I wasn't expecting you to be so enthusiastic about uh, going to see it. So Maybe I'll have that conversation with the family when we plan our next trip. We'll see. As long as you don't pay them. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, when was the last time you were in the museum or, or in the oh, Ark? Gosh, I've been to the Creation Museum twice and the Ark Park twice. I went to the Creation Museum the first week they were open and wrote a review for the National Center for Science Education. Yep. And I went back with a reporter, Joe Sonka to watch a fundraiser for the ARC. And I think that was like in 2015. And we had a wonderful representative from NCSE on with us to talk about the trial of the century uh, back a, a while back. It's wonderful that you are connected with them. So you were in the ARC and, and when was it? Oh gosh, I was there opening day. That's when the film crew followed me around from, uh, <laughs> from 37 films. And then I went back with Eugenie Scott in, I think, 2017 or 2018. I forgot which year. And gave her a tour, her own tour of the ARC as well. And they had updated a few things since the initial visit. On opening day, they didn't really have a lot of the usual labels and stuff on a lot of their things. And they managed to, I think they really had a struggle opening for opening day. Really? David, what about you? When was, when was the last time you were you were inside? Because you're a lifetime member. Well, so I've been to the Creation Museum more more times than I can count. Uh, when I was 16, I mowed lawns all summer to raise money uh, to help fund building that museum. Um, and so I'm a lifetime member of the Creation Museum up in Cincinnati. And that's where I can get you in for free if you call me. Okay. Because I, I got you. Uh, but the Ark Encounter... I've only been to the one time. Uh, I would like to go back and see what's been updated, what's changed. 
uh, since I've been there. They really did, like Dan said, have a tough time getting open. It felt like half the arc was empty when when I first was there because they really were rushed to get it completed uh, within the, the, the tax incentive deadlines and stuff. But I've only been to the arc encounter itself the one time that's shown in the film. Yeah. I've just found this blog called Dino Dad Reviews, and it's got a photo, which I'm assuming is a still from the film of you looking up at the outside of the arc. It looks like a very, very imposing uh, structure. It definitely is. Yeah, there's there's a scene in the film where I say, I'm, 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 I don't want to be excited, but I am, because it's hard not to be. How tall is the arc? 65 feet. Do I remember that correctly? Uh, well, it's... 510 feet long. Right, right. So, I only know this dimensions in cubits, so I'm not used to <laughs> <laughs> That measurement that nobody Siri knows to... how to translate into real measurements. <laughs> ask Siri if it can convert cubits to feet. Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> but is it the biblical cubit or the Noah's cubit? Because in the gift store, they actually sell two different wooden sticks. One of them is Noah's cubit, and the other one is the, the biblical cubit. Yeah, they, 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 difference. I think they just—it's—it's it's, it's like every all the other science they do. They just take whatever stick is the right length and shove it in there. So, yeah. <laughs> so that explains the discrepancy. They don't actually care very much about measurement, right? It's six thousand years or thirteen point eight billion. You know, it's a it's a Noah's cubit or or God, yeah, it's actually better. A, a light cubit, and not you know. It's right. not a light year, it's a light cubit. That's the, yeah. <laughs> How would Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum survive or change without Ken Ham at the helm? Is it all about Ken Ham? Or? I've, speculated, I've speculated on this many times. There's no way they're ever going to go, no matter how low their attendance goes, there's no way they'll ever close. They always have a way of getting um, people to donate money to them. Now, the one thing that could mess up is if Ken Ham was in a scandal or if his health declined and he was either ill or, or you know, ill or dead. Um, I'm not sure there's anybody that could take over for him. He is sort of the, um, the thing that keeps everything going and runs everything together. I, the people under him that you see, uh, they have um, weekly news broadcasts on YouTube. And sometimes Ken Ham will be there with some of his um, so-called creation scientists. And nobody can hold a match to Ken Ham. I don't see how the organization will survive, like if I said, if he got sick or if there was any sort of scandal of any sort. So I think a lot of it depends on him. What do you think, Dave? Well, you know, the one of the problems with keeping the Ark Encounter fungible, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, which obviously you know, put a, put a huge amount of, of pressure on them and has hurt them considerably, uh, as it has hurt many other venues. One of the problems is they don't update. They don't have new information. Uh, if you think about a real science museum, you know, they're going to have new exhibits. They're going to have new discoveries. They're going to have a source of new things. And so that drives repeat business. You know, I, I live here in Washington, D.C. I've got all the Smithsonian uh, museums here. And, you know, there's always something new that they have because that's the nature of science. And uh, there's always new research that can then be spun into a, you know, some new exhibit. But the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, they don't have that benefit because they're telling a single story. 
and it's not a story that they can ever change. It's not a story they can really update. Mm. And so the idea of this arc having repeat attendance and having people coming back just never transpired. But because of Kinham's personality, because of Kinham's ability to, you know, spin both good and bad media coverage to his benefit, I think as long as he's in control, it will, he will be able to maintain at least survivability. If once he's gone, once he's out of the picture, you know, he hasn't really had any major scandals like a lot of other evangelical leaders. But when he's out of the picture, for whatever reason, they're really going to start struggling because they don't have anyone who can pull off that kind of business acumen. Now, right now they can have a fundraiser. I think they had one a few months back. And in no time, they raised seven or eight million dollars. Wow. 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 You know. I don't, uh, I don't think we've mentioned this up to this point. I, I was questioning sort of systematic science on both sides. Before the ARC encounter opened, uh, as I recall, this was uh, 2012 or 2013, Bill Nye debated Ken Ham. Early 2014. And, uh, oh, was it 14? Thank you. If there is a head-to-head discussion of the two proposed methods of science that we have been talking about, something that would allow the listeners to to get their head around what each side has to offer. I think that gives a, a quite a good comparison. This is Ken Ham speaking for himself against a more traditional scientist, if I recall. I think Bill Nye's background is uh, aeronautics, but I'm, I might have that wrong. Uh, at any rate, the, the Ham-Nye debate is worth a review. But before you do that, you should watch we believe in dinosaurs. Where can the listeners view your documentary? You know, the documentary is on, it was broadcast on PBS. It may still be available if you have an account with PBS that it, mm. it gets premium access, that you may be able to see the broadcast version there again. If not, then it's available um, as a direct streaming download on Amazon Prime, Google Play, YouTube, and a variety of other streaming platforms. Uh, I believe there's a DVD. If you really want to buy a DVD and have it shipped uh, to you, you can do that on Amazon as well. You know, we do ask everyone definitely leave a review of the film after you've seen it because there, Ken Ham and other creationist organizations have bombed the film with negative reviews, claiming that it misrepresents science or misrepresents them. And it, and it doesn't. It's very fair and uh, very, you know, very well balanced uh, while still being taking the positive, the correct view of science. But uh, you can see it in any of these venues. We, we would ask that you definitely leave us a review. So I, I did notice earlier this evening yeah. that it's actually got a rating of over 90 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's got to be uh, that's, that's got to be great. So let's keep that up there. That, that is and before the right before the podcast uh, or whatever we're calling this, um, I checked out the British version of Amazon.com and it, it wasn't on there. So I'm not sure how in Britain you can actually or even elsewhere in Europe. It aired in Poland, of all places. Right. And that was going to be that. Yes, that was going to be my next question because I did try. I tried very hard to to find a copy, and um, all of the usual streaming services—Netflix, uh, Microsoft, Xbox, uh, Amazon—they all tempt you with it. But as soon as you log on uh, with a UK account, you can't find it, and that was the trouble that that I had. So, so that leads into who do I need to pester? 
in order to have licensing extended well, to my part of, of Europe? And can we have their email address and encourage everybody to email that person? Well, of course, I'll, it's through 1091 Films, but the website is we believe in dinosaurs.net. And there are dinosaurs there to 1091 Films, who owns the distribution rights, as well as contact info for the director. Can you get 10? Let's see. I'll do it on my computer. Make I'll, sure make, I'll make sure that URL ends up in our show notes. So, dear listeners, uh, check out the show notes. There will be that link there. And uh, certainly for all our European listeners, uh, please encourage the, the film distributors to, to get that crossover to Europe as well. I'd like to see much more of this. And I'd, I'd like to be able to debate to, to see a copy of this film as well. So, David, why, uh, Daniel, while you're looking up that website, let me ask, how can our listeners follow the two of you? Are, are the two of you doing uh, regular streaming of any kind? Do you have your own podcast, YouTube channels, blogs, seances? I'll contact you. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was very cleverly played. Well just, just, just think of me and I'll appear in your dreams. That's, you know, that's, that's creepy as hell. Um, I, uh, I know, I know Dan has a, has a Twitter. I have a Twitter as well. Um, I have a TikTok as well. Uh, what I just talk mostly about, I've talked about science and politics and stuff like that. Um, and so I'll make sure that you guys uh, get the links to, to our Twitters and, and to my TikTok. Please yes, do. Yes, because... thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Matthew, go ahead. Yeah. And I also run the Kentucky Paleontological Society, but unless you're here in the States and want to collect fossils, that really, we don't really broach the subject of creationism very often. Facebook is someplace where I, I post the attendance numbers every month. Daniel, before we wrap, something that you said there is really important with regard to the, the interface between science and, uh, and religious uh, pseudoscience. It is very true that science doesn't have it out for religion. The, the idea that, that professional scientists are somehow in collusion uh, against uh, organized religion that you can't be a Christian and a scientist and be well respected. That somehow your work is is uh, always perceived as substance. That is not is not the case. Science, in my experience, uh, my background's computer science, so we don't we don't talk about fossils or creation or 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 anything like that. It's uh you know it's <laughs> shifting bits from one place to another. But I read a lot of science. And I can't even name the last time a religious subject came up in a science article. And so I think the last thing I will say uh, as, as we're getting to a close, and then I'll leave it to three of you, is that science doesn't have it out for religion. Science is a study of the natural world, and those are not conclusions to be afraid of. You can maintain religion even in the face of, of science. And David, I, I know that, that you have. I don't, I don't have a problem. But to think of the endeavor of science as that group of studies that somehow has it out for organized religion is a kind of narrative that we should leave behind 
And we should do it right now. Because we live in the midst of a global pandemic and other crises that need our best support of science because the empirical method is to date our best method for discovering the truth about the world that we live in and how to grapple with living in it. Science is not your enemy, and I hope you walk away from this show with a little bit better understanding of that single point. Absolutely right. Um, yeah, science is not out to get religion. Um, mainstream science, contrary to what Ken Ham will tell you and what creationist organizations will tell you, is not designed to prove atheism or to dissuade people from Christianity. Um, there are so many people who are uh, scientists who have done enormous, you know, tremendous work in advancing the scientific method and who accept the, the the results of science that are people of faith. And, um, and it's important that we recognize that science works because it provides us results, not because it pushes us towards some preconceived notion. Mm. Yeah, and besides, most of the scientists I know are more religious than I am. Um, they, they, when they're doing science, they manage to separate the two subjects. And that's the important thing. I'm, I consider myself an unbeliever, but at the same time, I purposely don't really um, do much as far as joining or hanging out that much with irreligious groups that are in the area, like the tri-state freethinkers that are also featured in the film. I just find so many of the people there are really nice, but there's something toxic about constantly attacking people that aren't necessarily your enemies. Yeah. Bravo. Thank you very much both of you i genuinely enjoyed uh, hearing about your film and i look forward to watching it properly and um, we were put in touch with you guys by glenn branch from ncsc who andrew mentioned uh, a few moments ago and he promised us that we'd have a great chat with you and uh, he he delivered on that promise or you guys delivered on his promise uh, so so thank you very much uh, it's been been great to hear that and uh, hopefully your film will get uh, Get, get a wider wider audience because I think it most likely deserves it. Andrew's told me lots of great things about it. So uh, yeah, let's hope it uh, it extends its uh, its watchability. Thank you all so much. Uh, and good and um, And just as a final closing thing, do you guys have any other projects that you're planning to be involved in or is it just promote this film as much as you can? Well, I keep on uh, track of what they're up to all the time. I mean, I consider myself one of the go-to people if you want to find out what their recent activity is. I watch a lot of their YouTube videos and I look at their website every day and try to keep track of Ken Ham's Twitter account and lots of stuff like that. My main interest is learning about paleontology myself and teaching my students. I really, uh, I sort of wish the creationists would just sort of <laughs> fade away on us, but it's not going to happen, yeah. unfortunately. Okay. Dave? Yeah, um, you know, no, uh, I definitely. Um, I, I hope as many people watch the film as possible. 
Um, cause it's, it's a really good look at a, at a culture that's very advanced, that's very well organized and isn't very well known. So it's, I think it's a really good look at a cultural phenomenon, if nothing else. Thank you once again, both. And, uh, listeners, uh, if you have seen the film, drop me a, an email, tell me what you thought about it, at gmail.com. And as a final reminder, please remember that Andrew and I are also looking to hear about what your favorite Bible character is. So go on to our anchor page, the link will be down in the show notes, leave us a voice message, say who you are, who your favorite Bible character is. And when we've got uh, enough, we'll compile that into an episode. And we really hope that'll be an interesting episode to listen to. Just as a final teaser, we're hoping for a another high profile Christian guest onto our podcast coming up shortly. I won't give you any more information on that. This is just a teaser. Until the next time, talk to you soon. Goodbye. Thanks for thank having you. Us. Thank you so much, guys. That was David and Daniel. Guys, thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.